good to be here today. I'm glad so many could make it in for a talk on the Caroline Divines. <laughs> if you guys know something I don't know, I don't know. Well, yeah, so I'm Arnold Mayorga. Uh, it's lots of familiar faces. Just to tell you a little bit about myself, I'm an intern here, very part-time, mostly working with the men's, sometimes pinch-hitting for morning kids or Sunday service or something like this. Um, I'm also I'm an ordinant uh, in Anik. What that means is I'm uh, I'm a candidate for ordination, essentially. I'm in the last kind of stage of that, uh, waiting for appointment to a position. Yeah, also a little bit of the background. Yeah, maybe I could you could say I'm a former Pentecostal. I try and tell my parents I am still Pentecostal. <laughs> but I don't know if they would have me. Because <laughs> I'm also Anglican. I'm also many other things. So, uh, so that's there. Uh, interested in learning more about Anglicanism and curious about this group of people. Uh, you'll also notice I, it's Caroline Divines and Ecumenism is what the title was. I will be speaking about ecumenism, but it'll be a little brief. It's not fully developed because I think it kind of started becoming a whole other paper. And I want to get through this. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, so I want to introduce you. Uh, to the Caroline Divines, let you know who they are, what's their theology, uh, what we can learn from them. And so I want to do that in two parts. First part, kind of a brief historical background to kind of get the context for the Caroline Divines. Uh, in that same first part, I want to then talk about their theology. I won't be able to go through everything, but I'll try and hit some things in detail there. In the second part, that's when I want to suggest how their work can be uh, more immediately relevant to us. So I will talk about ecumenism, but I also want to talk about uh, other ways and how they're immediately relevant. Okay, also last introductory remark. I'm addressing you today as fellow learners. So in the spirit of community learning, I don't want to just monologue for an hour. So please, if you have questions or comments, something that I'm not being clear on, just make it known uh, so we can engage and dialogue a little bit. We're here face to face, so let's take advantage of that, right? Okay, so for a brief historical setting, the Caroline Divines are mostly a 17th century group of theologians and writers. The majority of them lived and worked under the reign of the Stuarts, James I, Charles I, and Charles II. And their time spent under the reigns of Charles I and Charles II is what gives them their designation Caroline. Charles in Latin is Carolus, hence Caroline. So there's no canonical list of who these divines were, but the most prominent are, I think, Jeremy Taylor, who lived from 1613 to 1667, Lancelot Andrews, 1555 to 1626, and Archbishop William Laud, who lived from 1573 to 1645. Others, including, you might recognize them, you might not, uh, John Cozen, Nicholas Farrar, George Herbert, Robert Sanderson, Isaac Walton, Henry Hammond, Herbert Thorndike, George Bull, the list goes on. Uh, in the period of, their, of the divines, you'll see there is largely 17th century. Late, late uh, uh, 16th century, uh, going to like mid to late 17th century. So this period, as some of you might know, comes at the heels of several identity-forming events in Anglicanism. There's the Elizabethan settlement and the publication of the third Elizabethan edition of the Book of Common Prayer. There's the revision of Cranmer's Articles of Religion, which becomes the 39 articles, which we know today, and the publication of Richard Hooker's Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Huge, pivotal moments in the history of the Church of England. And they established something of the spirit of Anglicanism. Hooker's work did much to defend a more moderate kind of via media form of Anglicanism. But in the 17th century, things are still far from stable, and there's a battle for the identity of Anglicanism. It's in full swing for decades, really. The 17th century is marked by intra-ecclesial conflict. So generally speaking, the Carolines are in opposition to a group of, uh, we might know, Puritans, Calvinist Puritans. So the Puritans wanted a more Presbyterian or non-Episcopal form of church governance, well, the Carolines were strong monarchists, and they defended the historic episcopate. Uh, episcopate, by the way, it's just bishops. 
They're defending the office of bishops. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the Puritans maintained the need to be more fully reformed in the church according to the Genevan way, while the Carolines insisted upon retaining all that was good and true, even if it was resemblant of Roman Catholicism. And the Puritans rejected the Book of Common Prayer. They were austere in their liturgical expression, and they were uncompromising, if not intolerant, of what they regarded as theological impurity in the church. The Carolines, on the other hand, were prayer book Anglicans. They advocated an extravagant beautification of their worship, and they opposed all separatism. Unfortunately, the conflict wasn't just ideological either. It's a bit of a stain here in our Anglican past. The Archbishop William Laud undertook a project of aggressively enforcing and persecuting uh, the Puritans when he came into power. So he, did, he wanted to enforce uniformity in liturgical form of worship. So he imprisoned, he mutilated, even martyred many dissenting Puritans. Uh, eventually, though, he was beheaded at the hands of the Puritans in 1645, and then the Puritans had their share of bloodshed through the English Civil War, and then their capture, the trial, and the execution of King Charles I. Some bloody history there. I have no interest in perpetuating antithetical form of theological thinking. I don't like the kind of sectarianism that can come from that. Um, so the rehearsal of the story really is just to give us a kind of context to know what was going on with the Carolines. There was some polemical uh, writing in the Carolines, with, especially with the Puritans, but also with the Roman Catholics. Um, hopefully that, that kind of gives you a sense of where they were historically. So, what I really want to do is look at their theology, receive like what they were doing, receive all that is good and true and beautiful within our common Christian heritage. I think that's a vital work for the maturity of Christians, because Christians, I think, should be marked by a generosity of thought, uh, a charitableness to our uh, Christian past. Try and understand them as best as we can. And in humility, we should be able to recognize the spirit at work in others. And if we can recognize the spirit at work in others, we can welcome that work and see how it can inform our own theology, our own spiritual life. So, uh, maybe some questions or comments at that, that moment. Any? Good? I was really thorough? Probably wasn't, but... <laughs> should we have an opening prayer? Opening prayer? Yes. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't know that we do that. <laughs> Just a quickie. Yeah. Sure, Trav, thank you. Father, I ask that you would help us this morning to uh, listen carefully um, to how you might be speaking through these group of men called the Caroline Divines. Help us, Lord, to wisely um, appreciate their work and to receive what your Spirit has done in our past. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I got one question, you know, with all these yeah, beheadings and things, and how England is known for their horror movies. Could this be perhaps why the English are so much into making horror movies? <laughs> all these, oh, good Lord, things that went on there. I don't know if there's direct, I mean, I don't think there's a direct connection, though history is sometimes horrifying. And I think uh, the English with their great long history have known some of that horror. Uh, okay, maybe let's get into the theology. Okay. So, theologically, the Carolines contributed to a golden era of Anglican scholarship and devotion. In their hands, theology was more than prose, it was poetry. Actually, I don't think it's a coincidence that several of the Carolines and their heirs were poets. George Herbert, George Herbert John Donne, and later T.S. Eliot taking their cue from Lancelot Andrews are all great poets, you might recognize them. And their leitmotif, their central theme, was their realistic theology of the sacraments. So what I mean by realistic theology of the sacraments is that they believed the sacraments truly communicated to the recipient something of what the sacraments represented. So to the Carolines, a merely symbolic understanding of the sacraments is a theological novelty that doesn't do justice to what a sacrament is. So though the sacraments are symbolic, they're also more. They're actual means or effectual signs of God's grace to the recipient. So Richard Hooker puts it this way, that the sacraments really give what they promise, and they are what they signify, is what he says. So therefore, the sacrament of baptism, which symbolically, I think, indicates cleansing, rebirth, 
participation in Christ's death and resurrection. The sacrament of baptism was understood to be truly regenerative of new spirit-empowered life in the person being baptized. Jeremy Taylor, one of the foremost leaders of the Caroline Divines, writes, After the Holy Jesus was baptized and had prayed, the heavens opened and the Holy Ghost descended, and a voice from heaven proclaimed him to be the Son of God and one in whom the Father was well pleased. He says, As Christ our head felt these effects in manifestation, so the church believes God does to her and to her meanest children in the susception of the holy rite of baptism, in right appointment and holy dispositions. For the heaven, heavens open to upon us, and the Holy Ghost descends to sanctify the waters, to hallow the catechumen, to pardon the past and repented sins, and to consign him to the inheritance of sons, and to put on his military girdle, and to give him the sacrament of oath of fidelity. So lots going on in baptism. Really actual things are happening in this rite of baptism for the Caroline Divines. Any, maybe any questions there? Good? Makes sense? Maybe we all believe that already? <laughs> yeah. I think the, the, the Vines part kind of acknowledges that they're writing theologically. Oh. Um, lots of these guys were clergy or theologians, uh, though there were some lay men and uh, just poets and writers there as well. So, I don't know if you're going to get to this, but did yeah. they believe in transubstantiation? I will get to that. Um, perfect segue. Now, are you kind of convinced? By this, or are you just telling us what they believe? Yeah, lots of what I read in there is compelling, though there's some that needs to be, I wouldn't say discarded, but like maybe handled uh, judiciously. Uh, some of their context is it's polemical, right? And so it might come off as negating other positions that we would also want to include, like particularly the Puritans. They're part of the evangelical heritage. And sometimes in really polemically advancing their position, they're negating some of the good that the Puritans bring. I wouldn't want to do that, for example. Okay. So in the Sacrament of Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, which symbolically indicates Christ's sacrificial giving of his body and blood, the communicant was believed to be actually receiving the body and blood of Christ in some real way. So John overall maintained in self-conscious consensus with the fathers that in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and the blood of Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, are indeed really present and are really received by us and are really united to the sacramental signs which not only signify but also convey Christ in the communion of the sacrament. And Puritans believe that? Puritans, I do not think. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's hard to paint them in a whole light. Uh, similar, but it isn't exactly the Catholic position, because uh, they take objection to transubstantiation. Um, so it seems that most of the Carolines continued along Hooker's understanding of the Eucharist. Uh, they spoke about the sacraments as working in a receptionist manner, though they still believed in the objective, real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. In short, the receptionist doctrine stated the effects and benefits of the sacrament are not strictly dependent on the elements of the sacrament, but primarily on the one receiving the sacrament. So this receptionism was actually formulated in polemical dialogue with the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. So they're saying it isn't the same as transubstantiation. Actually, many of them make very clear that we don't adhere to that. And, you know, the 39 articles, they say that you shouldn't. It's... Uh, unbiblical and non-patristic, uh, and so they don't accept transubstantiation. I was looking in the, in the Holy Rosary Cathedral Church program, they say they literally translate the scripture when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. Yeah. And I refer from the Brethren Church, he says that's actually receiving him, so some very evangelicals, yeah. but that's why Catholics believe what they do. Yeah. They believe it actually. Is it real? Yeah. Actually, it's a very literal interpretation they yeah. do of the scriptures. Yeah. In some ways, yeah, it can be understood as very literal, and I, that's actually one of the places with the Carolines that I think there's some problems there, um, because I, many Catholics would say it isn't literal. It's not that simple. <laughs> um, so it isn't that they're corporeally receiving. Uh, 
Christ's body and blood in some very mechanical way. So there are many that try and find a kind of connection between the two or how they can be uh, united again. So the, the receptionist position of the Carolines, it, it acknowledges the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. It says it's there. They're very hesitant on kind of explaining like the mechanics of how Christ is there, the, the metaphysic behind that, where the Catholic position can be understood to be doing a little bit more of that, more than the Carolines are comfortable with, and more than the Patristics did, which for them is it's not okay. That's where they really take objection. Currently, there are many who try and see those things be reconciled. Uh, for those who are interested, there is an idea by a George Hunsinger, uh, on trans-elementation that I think is quite compelling on how these two things can be reconciled without just making uh, it tra transubstantiation. Does that make sense a little bit? Is that Some of that might be a little... Yeah? Okay. Is it more like Luther's position that he eventually arrived Good. at, which we would call consubstantiation? Consubstantiation. It's, called it that too, I yeah. don't know. So it's a, it's a lot more similar, I think. Christ is there. Yeah, it's a it's a lot more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe you could say substantially. I, theologians are famously really careful with how they're putting these things because they they want to acknowledge kind of the full reality of it, or or not overly defined, but also not be uh, too ambiguous, I guess. Um, so it is very similar to consubstantiation, but I don't think it's the exact same thing. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the book given for you by Keith Matheson, but it's an excellent uh, exposition of the reformed position of the real presence of yeah. Christ in the supper, yeah. but not as transubstantiation. The issue with transubstantiation, yeah. of course, is that it is literally becoming that. Yeah. And this leads to all the veneration in monstrance. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, yeah. Have, you have to have these things because he's literally, it's literally God in your hands. Yeah. Yeah. And it led to all kinds of oddities in the church where they're putting it directly in your mouth because people would pocket you it, don't take wanna, it home, yeah. you know, yeah. pray to it because it's Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so it's an excellent book. I put it out there for yeah. people who haven't read it. And yeah. he defends the, the traditional Reformed view of the real yeah. presence, but it's a presence by faith. Yeah. So I will, thanks for that. I, there are different ways in which Christians have understood real presence. Um, so the Reformed do speak about, and Calvin especially, speak about a spiritual real presence. Um, Lutherans have consubstantiation, so it's a, it's a little bit more in between transubstantiation and the spiritual presence. Uh, and I think Anglicans are very close to that consubstantiation. Though consubstantiation, I think it's, it talks about the substance of bread uh, and, and wine, and Jesus's substance uh, body and blood existing kind of in like hypostatic union which which some which is the way that Jesus's divinity and nature uh, human nature were united some take issue with that <laughs> without getting into details uh, but I think it's I think there's something there that I think we need to wrestle with and acknowledge and uh, yeah I think it's a it's a view of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist that I think many Christians have held, and there's reason for it. Um, transubstantiation sees it more like the substance of Christ's body and blood uh, annihilate the substance of bread and wine. So in a kind of like in appearance, in external, in accidents they call it, they're still bread and wine, but truly, substantially, it's the body and blood of Christ. And, well, one, that's like describing the metaphysics of the sacrament in a way that the church fathers and the, the Carolines and many other Christians were not really comfortable with. Today, many Orthodox, that they're not comfortable with that because they're, they're describing a mystery that is really inscrutable to the minds of men. Um, that's, that's where the issue is, is mostly held. Yeah? What was that word that you said that... Um George Hunsinger. George Hunsinger talks about transelementation. Uh, the book is called 
Eucharist and ecumenism, let us keep the feast. Okay. Yeah, so the Carolines all reject transubstantiation. And the 39 articles, they basically say you have to reject transubstantiation. Um, yeah, but they do hold to a real presence, a real and essential presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So to more fully understand the Caroline position on the sacraments, I want us to recall the classically Augustinian distinction between the outward and visible sign of the sacrament, and this is called the sacramentum, and the inward and spiritual grace of a sacrament. This is called the race. So in a receptionist understanding, the sacramentum and the rays are sacramentally united. And the sacramentum is not abolished. So that's what seems like that might happen in transubstantiation, which they take a problem with. So the elements, the sacramentum, play an instrumental role in communicating the rays, the real presence of Christ, to the faithful receiver, but this doesn't occur in a kind of mechanical or corporal way, which that's where it tends to more like magic and can lead to superstition, particularly in uh, those who don't understand what's going on, um, which is where the problem is, right? So the efficacy of grace conveyed through the sacrament depends primarily on the disposition of faith in the recipient as well as the right administration of the sacrament. So, the Carolines did not go on to speak about how exactly the sacrament affected the reality which it signified. That's, that's why they took objection to the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. They interpreted transubstantiation as giving precise metaphysical explanation of the Eucharist, and they didn't think that was possible, like I said earlier. For the Carolines, the mechanism of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist remained a mystery. The sacraments weren't there. This is the other thing. In this kind of metaphysical description of the Eucharist, the focus goes entirely, or can go entirely, to the elements. And then... The sacrament of the Eucharist, the, the intent kind of seems to bring the presence of Christ to these elements. But for the Carolines, the sacraments weren't there to be analyzed, or for the elements weren't there to be uh, worshipped in that way. They are instituted by Christ and offered to the church that we should duly use them so we could partake in the very life of the triune God. So they stayed away from um, putting the Eucharist in monstrances and uh, uh, Eucharistic adoration, they didn't go that direction. Though they would acknowledge the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. It was something that was, let's say, bound in the liturgy, in its uh, due use by the recipient. Does that make a little bit of sense there? <clears throat> okay. Appropriately then, the Carolines maintained that the sacraments were central to the life of the church. Now, this is another one of their distinctive features. Lancelot Andrews maintained that word and sacrament are equally integral to Christian worship. For Andrews, the Eucharist was the heart of the church's worship, but it was always to be contextualized by the reading and preaching of the scriptures. His sermons were a high point, but they tended to set up parishioners for reception of the Eucharist. After all, they thought, if Christ is really present, if he's really come and made himself present to the recipient in the Eucharist, then how could Christians treat this event as anything other than central? For the Carolines, the portion of the liturgy preceding the Eucharist should prepare and direct all towards a worthy reception of Christ. Communion itself was to be conducted in a manner that was God-honoring and reverent, and the portion of the liturgy that followed the Eucharist ought to encourage gratitude and joy at the grace of God's presence with us. So it all very much kind of centered on that, on communion. So part and parcel with this emphasis on the sacraments was their concern for the aesthetic quality of worship. The Carolines made great efforts to restore churches and to beautify the liturgy. King Charles I encouraged, with the influence of sovereign authority, a liturgical renewal and a surge in the production of new devotional material. And with King Charles I's accession to the throne, William Laud's ecclesiastical career prospered. 
Laud loved ceremony and harmonious liturgy, so as Archbishop of Canterbury, he began to enforce conformity in the conduct of worship services. So he's enforcing kind of aggressively, but to his mind, he was restoring decent and orderly worship. To his opponents, the Puritans, he was imposing Roman Catholic popery, but that's not at all what he was trying to do. He actually wrote uh, against the Roman Catholic position, against popery. So in the Oxford History of Christian Worship, it describes it, it describes this kind of moment in, uh, in Anglicanism this way. Ceremonial was introduced, including bowing towards the altar. Copes were worn more frequently, and many Carolines insisted that the communion table should be placed where the old altar had stood and be railed in so that communicants could kneel in an orderly fashion around the table. Chapels were beautified with organs, Plate and utensils adorned the altar for the Holy Sacrament, and all were instructed to approach and depart in lovely reverence and adorations. However, far from promoting popery, this was seen as a defense against the appeal of Roman Catholicism to the laity, as well as being a more apostolic and Catholic form of worship than the austere Puritan worship. Eventually, after much conflict and dissent over liturgical practice, and thanks to the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II and and the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which was issued uh, along with an act of uniformity. Uh, in some ways, the changes that were made there um, were really minimal, but the end result was that the, the liturgical practices of the Carolines um, that, that they insisted upon and introduced, they found a permanent place within Anglicanism with that. Though the changes weren't like super drastic, they stayed there, and we still know it to this day in many places. Worship in the beauty of holiness, which is a phrase used uh, to describe the Caroline worship, became one of the foremost and long-lasting legacies of the Caroline divines. Worship in the beauty of holiness, by the way, is, uh, is a reference made in Psalm 29 and 96. Um, they wanted to see the worship of the church line up with kind of the worship that they saw in Old Testament scriptures of God and in the book of Revelation where... Jesus is high and lifted up, and the church is kind of elevated into these heavenly places. Their mind for worship is, is very vertically oriented. Uh, sometimes we, and especially in, in modern period, we tend to be much more horizontally oriented. Um, or their, theirs was, because of kind of sacramental imagination, much more uh, vertically oriented and God related to them in kind of physical, real, tangible ways in the liturgy. Okay. Uh, any other questions there? Maybe comments, fears, concerns? I, I, I remember an instance of the Holy Rosary. You have to be confirmed before you take the sacrament. It's after the body of Christ and a person took it. Priest knew he had been, and it was such a big concern. The priest managed to get the wafer back from the person. It was that big. Yeah. Uh, oh my goodness gracious! <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if the Carolines. Oh. Uh, I didn't. I didn't read too much about their theology of confirmation, but I imagine that they would have continued that. The Anglican Church was still largely continuing that. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, role, if any, did uh, Charles the First play in some of this? Because I mean, he was married to a Roman Catholic, and yeah. this, of course, was uh, a bone of contention at the time as well, yeah. leading up to the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, and some some people, like the Puritans, would have viewed her influence on him and his yeah, influence totally. then on the Archbishop yeah. of Canterbury as being a, yeah. like, kind of a political meddling within church affairs. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any comment on that? Yeah. Well, I think that's where. That's where the grounds for saying that there was popery being <laughs> promoted by them is. That's where it's grounded, I think. Um, and there's. But was there any substance to that? Did Charles was he actually influencing it? That way? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I. I don't think so. I think many of the Carolines, they all. They reject uh, Roman Catholicism. They're not like. They're not just wanting to become Roman Catholic. They take objection to universal papal jurisdiction. Um, they take objection to transubstantiation. Uh, they they wanted to retrieve the kind of Catholic worship that they thought was common to all Christians before the Reformation, which they thought was kind of uh, set aside in, 
post-Reformation in a way that wasn't helpful. But uh, I, I wouldn't say that... Like, he gives place for Archbishop William Laud. But William Laud, like, he wrote polemically with the Catholics and, like, really aggressively. You know the writing back then. Um, didn't, wasn't okay with it. Huh? Imagine we didn't know the writing. <laughs> uh, they're flowery with their language they <laughs> they're not like as kind and um, non-confrontational as we tend to be and when we object to somebody's position uh, yeah when you read across these traditions we don't want to go to big issues like this until the end because your presentation so far is great I really uh, there are hidden agreements yeah. across the traditions. Yeah. I hope an agreement here would be, I love the phrase of John Webster, that God the Trinity in the Bible is always presented, this little phrase haunts me for its beauty, God is self-presenting in freedom. Hmm. Okay. The church doesn't command Jesus, be here now, right. we've done a proper liturgy, yeah. or we've heard the word preached faithfully as good evangelicals. Yeah. That doesn't command God's presence. Yeah. God presents himself in his yeah. freedom. Yeah. Are they all agreed on that? Yeah, so one of the things that the Carolines do recall, because they're going to patristic sources, which I'll talk about a little bit in a second, <laughs> they're retrieving uh, this prayer called uh, Epiclesis, or the invocation of the Spirit. So when they're praying before uh, communion or the Eucharist, they're, they're asking that the Holy Spirit make himself present to his people. It's, it's a prayer in kind of appealing to God, saying, be merciful, be gracious, come be present with us. Uh, so it isn't, it isn't that mechanical, we've done the physical things and therefore he, he just shows up. But there is an acknowledgement that God promises to be with his people. And they say, okay, come be with us then, right? Does that make sense? I'm, I'm not quite sure I know what polemic and polemical mean. Oh, in kind of argumentation with another, yeah. Yeah. Good, yeah? I, I don't understand how, um, what you mean by worship being horizontal. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so we can let's think about like in the in the context of a sermon. Let's say often we might listen to application. Okay, what do we go out and do then? How should we therefore live our lives? Which is good. It's right, but there's also a sense in, in a sense in which in the sermon Christ speaks to us. He comes and kind of makes himself present with us. And so there's a vertical dimension, which we're not just listening in the liturgy. We're not just hearing uh, someone read the scriptures, but we're hearing God speak to us, right? Uh, worship is, is elevated out of just an earthly kind of realm or earthly reality. Uh, and it's brought into, let's say, the throne room of God. Uh, revelation is like something that really... Hebrews uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it plays a large role in their kind of theological imagination. So when you're saying the vertical is more elevating your mindset up to him, but if it's horizontal, we're just too much occupied with us, surrounding us here, and then seeing beyond yeah. what we see here is more vertical thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's mind to the heavenly realities mm -hmm. that happen when we gather as a people, we pray together, we worship, we read the scriptures together. Something more than just a people gathering is happening. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, we are getting close. Uh, so they're also, you'll, you'll have noticed that they're in their theological method turning to the church and the church fathers to inform their understanding of the scriptures. Short here... They have they hold to a primacy of scripture, but the scripture isn't a scripture that is in vacuo. It's not uh, alone in the sense of just exists without mediation. So they're looking to the church fathers to see how do they interpret the scriptures. They're looking to the the wider church, the wider understanding of what the the people of God have understood God to be saying in His scriptures. So they're consistently turning to. The role of tradition, little t, 
I, I want to kind of get to the last bit because I think there's going to be some engagement there as well. So I'm going to skip a little bit of this. Uh, the, the kind of major area that they go to are the first five to seven centuries uh, because there are like, it's the presence of the, the undivided church. There was divisions kind of afterwards. And so they look especially to the four ecumenical councils and the three ancient creeds, the Athanasian, the Apostles, and the Nicene Creed. Those inform how they're understanding the scriptures. Okay, okay, let's see that. Yeah, so not surprisingly, the Caroline appeal to antiquity was also used ecclesiologically to defend the status of the English church itself. For the Carolines, the Church of England was the Catholic and Apostolic Church in England. So this proved her status as a true church. So John Bramhall, another Caroline, vindicates the Church of England against aspersions of criminal, criminal schism by arguing that the Church of England before the Reformation and the Church of England after the Re Reformation are as much the same church as a garden before it is weeded and after it is weeded is the same garden. So the ecclesiological claim to Catholicity and apostolicity is also what gave Caroline's impetus for worshiping in the ancient Catholic manner. Against those who opposed Caroline's ceremonial as novel and Romish, John Cozen writes that, In truth, we have continued the old religion, and the ceremonies which we have taken from them that were before us are not things which belong to this or that sect, but they are the ancient rites and customs of the Church of Christ. Wherefore, ourselves being apart, we have the self-same interest in them, which our fathers before us had, from whom the same descended unto us. You'll catch something of the role of what tradition with the predecessors play for, for the Carolines there. Okay, now I could go on detailing the theological contributions of the Carolines. They do a lot. They did much to advance also moral theology of the pre-Reformation schoolmen. They stressed the need for Christ to cooperate with God's grace, or for, with, sorry, let me say that again. They stressed the need for Christians to cooperate with God's grace and to cultivate growth in virtue. So they were even labeled Arminians by the Calvinist Puritans for doing so. Also, as was already hinted at, they were high church politically, which meant that they viewed the state and its head as instituted and ordained by God. And they defended the episcopacy against Presbyterian attempts to reform church governance. You could detail that. We don't have time. <laughs> but I think what's been said is a bit of an introduction to their thought, to their theology. Now, what I want to do now is to suggest what the Carolines can give to us. So before today, this group of Anglican thinkers were probably largely unknown to the most of us. Uh, there are aspects of their theology that are definitely more suited to their particular context, I think. But I'm persuaded of the good of at least two points. Their sacramental theology and their worship in the beauty of holiness. And this for two reasons. I want to talk about ecumenism and evangelism. I'll explain. I'll try to be succinct. So, ecumenism, as some of you may know, has in some ways come to a roadblock. Though much progress was done in the 20th century, it seems that there were and are some doctrinal differences that just will not allow convergence. Many of the irreconcilable differences remaining between the theologies of Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and Protestant denominations, I think, are traceable back to a divergence in an issue of fundamental theology. And that's the relationship between the order of nature and the order of grace. So how one conceives of this relationship affects everything from Christology, soteriology, moral theology, to ecclesiology, apologetics, and biblical hermeneutics. It's, it's really fundamental. It affects all these things. So continued ecumenical work in this subject of nature and grace, I think, is going to be pivotal for the future of ecumenism. The Carolines, I think, might prove a helpful Anglican way into understanding the relationship between nature and grace. And I think their contribution here is especially helpful because it's simultaneously Protestant insofar as it's Anglican, it's Catholic insofar as it's medieval, and it's Orthodox insofar as it's patristic. So it's already ecumenical, this idea of how nature and grace relate. So underlying the Caroline Sacramental Theology and their Catholic Ecclesiology is a complementary theology of nature and grace.
It's perhaps only implicit in the theology of most of the Carolines, and from what I can tell, it's not consciously developed as it is in the 20th century, but there are noteworthy indications that the Carolines indeed held this position. At least in the theology of Andrews, as well as of Hooker's, there are iterations of the old idea that grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. An important idea. So just, for example, faith perfects reason, and reason is ordered to faith, but reason remains incomplete without the grace of faith. Or another way you could understand this, uh, it, in moral theology, let's say, there are the theological virtues, and they perfect the acquired moral virtues, and the acquired moral virtues are ordered to the theological virtues, but the acquired moral virtues remain incomplete without the theological virtues. You can catch there, there's an interconnectedness. They can remain distinct, but they're not separated. Okay? A complementary understanding of grace and nature connects everything in the natural order through Christ to the supernatural order. I think that's really key there. So in effect, it re-sacramentalizes our disenchanted world. It opens us up to the transcendent. It gets us out of the horizontal and more into the vertical. So the, mo the modern and postmodern inability to see beyond the imminent material world is healed, I think, and there's a happy union between the order of creation and the order of redemption. So not a few thinkers have suggested, suggested that this is exactly what is underlying uh, so many contemporary problems. And if this is the case, then the Carolines seem to be a helpful source, pointing Anglicans in the direction of an attempt to reweave what one of my regent professors, Hans, Bor Hans Borsma, has called the sacramental tapestry. They might help us in that. That needs explanation. Where <laughs> that's where I think if if I'm going to dive into that a little bit more, that might be another paper. Um, I understand if there's questions there. And if you do want to engage on some of that stuff, if you know some of that stuff, would love to hear suggestions for books or where to follow that stuff up. You know, with Catholic people I've met, the atmosphere among some Catholics, like, ooh, are going to do the Catholic. There's something about it that's just. And when they had the charismatic Catholic renewal in the 80s and the Vatican II in the 60s, there's something about the Catholic Church is just really, there's, wow, it's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, you know <laughs> interesting that you mentioned the charismatic renewal. I think that's something that's it's, it's implicit in uh, the charismatic kind of churches. There is also a vertical tendency. Um, and there's sometimes maybe to the point of uh, disregard of our physical earthly realities. But I think that's something that's there as well. Yeah, the baptism and the Holy Spirit is sometimes yeah. you pray and that other language, yeah. the heat comes out of your yeah. hands. And, yeah. but, you know, the, the miraculous is a lot more kind of mm -hmm. present. Yeah. Okay, secondly, the Carolines, I think, could be helpful for our evangelistic endeavors in the 21st century North America. Admittedly, it's a little odd to suggest that Anglicans from 300 years ago whose favorite theologians were men who lived a thousand or sixteen hundred years ago, could aid in our evangelism. But the Lord has done stranger things, no? And as strange as it may seem, I think the Carolines remind us of something that is well suited to reach people in our current time and place. I think it's the power of beauty and symbol. You'll recall that one of the char characteristic features of the Carolines is their concern to beautify the churches uh, and their liturgy. And I think we may do well to do likewise. In postmodern North America, beginning your evangelism, well, let me explain. This is. So, in our context, we might begin evangelism by appealing to the moral goodness of Christianity. Um, but with, I think, millennials and iGeners, this appeal is pretty unproductive, maybe even counterproductive. The moral value of Christianity has been dealt some devastating critiques. And because of the churches and our own failure, I think, to show forth a truly Christ-like goodness, the church has lost any claim it might have once had in the culture as a moral guide. So I'm not saying here that this should be the case or that we should just allow this to be the case. I don't think we should. But I'm just stating what I think is a pretty recognizable fact. People don't believe that the church is good that it's good for society or that it might be good for them. 
Actually, one of the most common objections to Christianity that I hear from people is that the church and or Christians are hypocritical. At best, the moral goodness of Christians Christians is negligible to the average non-Christian. And for those who come from a Christian background and maybe share some of the beliefs in Christianity's moral goodness, uh, evangelism that calls for a recognition of their moral failure and Christ's moral goodness is often dismissed as judgmental. And again, I'm not saying that that should be the case. I'm just describing how people generally respond to those appeals. Now, on the other hand, leading with the truth of Christianity, I think, is certainly more effective. But it's too often met with bewilderment, I think. Biblical illiteracy is increasingly widespread. We even find it in our own churches. So you're likely to receive blank stares if you describe how Jesus is the Messiah, or he's the Son of God who has come to save the world from its enslavement to sin and death. Much of the categories that we Christians use to understand the faith are no longer shared. And what's worth, truth itself is under fire. The, object, the objectivity of the natural sciences isn't even immune anymore. So people appealing to any truth, let alone the truth that is Jesus, often requires a good deal of preliminary work. People today generally come equipped with, okay, that's your truth, or that's good for you, but I know my own truth. That's not what I believe. So engaging in the inevitable philosophical questions on the nature of truth I think can be helpful, so apologetics can be helpful. But this tact often assumes a lot about the kind of person that you're dealing with and where they are on their spiritual journey. Also, it takes a lot of time, and you have to get behind a lot of defenses. So in short, I think evangelism through reasoned conversation, though good and absolutely necessary, it can prove inefficient in our culture because it's often an uphill battle against their wills, against their hearts. So accordingly, then, I think we need to show them that they want Christianity to be true. To take a a play from C.S. Lewis, if our presentations of the gospel are going to be emotionally gripping, we have to work at attuning their desire to Christ. And I think this is most simply done when we lead with beauty in our witness to Christ. The beautiful bypasses or maybe surpasses the intellect. It floods into persons through all the senses bodily. So the beautiful grips people, I think, by the heart and draws them into itself, into the beautiful. So I think it's a pretty good way to begin evangelism when possible. It isn't the whole story, of course. You have to get to the moral goodness and the truth of Christianity, but it's a good way to engage in the beginning. And I think this can be done in a variety of ways. Obviously, art, music, and literature, like that of Lewis and Tolkien's, are good ways. Movies are, of course, increasingly popular and powerful, and Christians have used them to great effect. But let me propose that the most potent way for the church to do this is through a beautiful liturgy. A beautiful liturgy, which is harmonious with Scripture and richly multi-layered in symbolism, internalizes the gospel in us in a way that goes beyond even what a good sermon or good lecture can do. Truthfully, I think the church's liturgy is where we encounter God most fully and most explicitly, because I think it's the place where God has promised to meet us. And when we communicate this physically in the aesthetics of our worship, it makes this more of a felt reality. It it ceases being theoretical or intellectual, and it becomes much more visceral to to the audience or to the people in the pews. So interestingly, I think more traditional Catholic liturgical expressions of Christianity are now becoming increasingly popular. Uh, Even in denominations where traditional Catholic liturgies are frowned upon traditionally, uh, church-planting strategists, which tend to spend a lot of time kind of exegeting the culture, they're heading in that direction, oddly enough. Uh, Big, flashy, contemporary-style worship that centers on a dynamic sermon and popular music Uh, It arouses minimal kind of interest today. Non-Christians, they're generally just, they don't care, but they're not really interested by that. Uh, 
The Caroline insistence on the beautification of the church in her liturgy is therefore maybe worthy of our careful consideration. Some questions we might want to ask ourselves are, do we share the Caroline's reason for making the liturgy beautiful? If not, why not? If we do, why would we object to the project of beautifying the church? I think the forms and the resources for Anglicans to do this are already in place. That's part of what attracted me from Pentecostalism to the Anglican church. So I think it's just a matter of allowing it to flourish. And finally, I'll add that even if we're skeptical of our of the evangelistic benefits of a beautiful, richly layered liturgy, there is still the question, I think, of how form affects content, about the formative power of embodied liturgical worship for Christians, maybe the fittingness of a style of worship to its object, and the scriptural precedence for worshiping in the beauty of holiness. I think all these points are points which the Carolines and their heirs have commented on, so they seem an interesting resource for thinking about these things. Okay. So I hope it's clear that my my intent isn't to idealize the Carolines as like the authentic heritage of Anglicanism. There are many other streams that need to inform us, but they are a stream that we cannot just say that didn't exist in Anglicanism, and they need to be considered, I think, and think about how what we can retrieve from them. So I think if the Anglican communion is to ever move forward, it will be through a reconciliation of Anglicanisms, not through the assertion of a single strand of Anglicanism. And in becoming a student of the Carolines, I only hope to discover and bring out what good treasures there are in the Anglican household of God. I think maybe, perhaps, the Anglicans, what Anglicans find there will contribute to the restoration of the Anglican communion, and through this, to the reunification of the whole church, the healing of the Christian body. Thank you. A little bit of time for questions.